Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. I suppose the real big call out is read everything and read it critically. For every winner, there's a loser. You want to make sure you're not competing against the big guys. You want to be competing against the people that have no idea what they're doing. These companies can scale well. You need to check if they're going to scale well. That's when having good quality management is really crucial. Back when I was 21, I got my information off Hot Copper, the worst of the worst. I have a million ifs in my thesis and it's unlikely that it's going to come. Investing in a zero revenue idea that has so many ifs in its story before it actually makes a profit and pays a dividend. Really where you have value as an investor is using your own brain to sceptically analyse what companies say. Some people, like me, don't come to investing or money naturally. They rack up credit card debt, they invest irresponsibly, and then they have to learn to manage their money the hard way. But then there's today's guest, who started investing during the GFC. Claude Walker has worked at Motley Fool, founded Ethical Equities, a company founded on supporting investors find quality small caps, and is now the editor-in-chief of A Rich Life. Welcome to the pod, Claude. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm so excited to have you because I am always amazed by people who have their finances together from, it seems like, birth. And I want you to tell us a little bit about how you got into finance, how you started investing, and how you ended up at A Rich Life. Well, first of all, I don't think you should be that amazed with people that uh, have a luckier start to life. I went to a Sydney private school. My father's a barrister. I had every um, possible advantage. So, if I didn't have my uh, stuff together. I think that, that would be more of an indictment on me. <laughs> My first memory of, of sort of investing was actually when I was about 11 years old, a friend of mine had told me that his dad was already retired, which I thought was, you know, a bit unusual and because all the other dads worked. In fact, I think most of us hardly saw our dad. So, uh, I asked my dad, uh, you know, wh- what did, what does his dad do? How, how come he's already retired? And I, I'll always remember it sort of stuck with me as if sort of some moment that stuck in my mind forever. And it was, uh, yeah, I, he made a lot of money selling shares. And I think that was the, the, the moment that the little... Your mind was blown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> popped into my, my head that that might be a way that I could be retired before all the other dads. <laughs> and was this, was this uh, planted in your head as you were like, and one day I can be home with my children? Or were you just like, I love the idea of being able to not work? Yes, I love the idea of being able to do whatever I want. Um, that, <laughs> I, that definitely wasn't put on me by my dad, who has like extreme work ethic and loves his work. Yeah. So that was just me that clung on to that little tidbit of information. I mean, 11 is a pretty young age to be introduced to FI, like as far as like the fire movement goes. That's definitely like what a ripe age to capture hearts and minds. You were like, this is it. This is my life now. I'm going to sell shares and retire. Yeah, sort of. Although I wouldn't, I don't really identify with uh, the the fire thing because I think that's a lot about you know being frugal and and sensible and and that's all very laudable. But I'm definitely not claiming that I'm good at any of that stuff whatsoever. I am perfectly 
comfortable spending all the money that I earn, but uh, I I hope to I have and I hope to continue to compound my the money that I invest and that has made a massive difference in my life. So there's this formative event that changes, I guess, your perspective on investing and kind of what is possible with money. But tell me how then you got into finance because you could have just been a dabbler, you know, someone really passionate about investing, but you're fully embedded in the industry. Yes, I am now. So I had when I was at university, I started investing in shares and took an interest in that. And I was studying a law degree because my dad was a barrister, I guess, and and everyone had sort of told me I was like him and should be a barrister as well. But I was more interested in learning about investing. And so that was like a passion, a, a hobby of mine throughout university that I kind of dipped in and out of when I was busy with other things. I neglected it and ignored it. But it was still, it was the start of my learning journey. And then at the end of university, I started making some tentative steps into becoming a lawyer and realized quite quickly that the only way, like that, that was just wasn't something that was going to be fun for me at all. And um, so then I kind of like dropped out of that path and joined a company uh, as a sort of assistant manager slash guy on the tools installing solar panels while I sort of s- sorted out what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. And in that in that time, I started my first blog that doesn't exist anymore, but it was Green Equities, which was sort of a precursor, I guess, to what is a rich life today. When I would, you know, write about companies that I thought were good companies and essentially that was, you know, towards the end of... Um, I think the Gillard government and as the government changed, it became pretty clear that it was going to be really tough for me to make a career in renewable energy. So I switched to uh, trying to focus on investing, basically. And specifically, I feel like, I mean, you did spend some time at The Motley Fool, but certainly like your more recent endeavours have been really focused on the smaller end of town and small caps. And I'm really curious to know... What attracted you to that part of the market? Yeah, so I was, I've was i always been into small caps. I was into small caps before I worked for The Motley Fool. When I worked for The Motley Fool, I uh, wrote the recommendations for a service called Motley Fool Hidden Gems, which is focused on small caps. And the reason that I chose small caps is because at the smaller end of the market, uh, there's far less market efficiency. So when you have a big company that's in the ASX 200, and has been for many years, it might have 20 different analysts, all of whom are very intelligent, all of whom spend their time trying to figure out exactly what makes, what influences the results that company is going to put out, trying to predict what those results for that company are going to be. And they probably have quite good access to management and they have better resources than most people. It's very hard to compete with that. And markets are a competition. I think one of the dangerous things about this fun but also wrong idea that people had who just joined the markets in the last couple of years is this idea that if we all just jump on worthless companies together, we all win. You don't all win. Like when you, if you bought a meme stock at 10 cents and sold it at a dollar, there's another guy that bought it at a yeah. dollar and, and kept holding it all the way down back to 10 cents. 
it's actually mostly a zero sum game. Yet it's not quite markets aren't quite a zero sum game because true value is created by good businesses. But just most of markets is a zero sum game. For every winner, there's a loser. If you want to play in markets, you really have to take the view that you want to be better and smarter and better at predicting outcomes than other people. And coordinated market manipulation can move share prices, but ultimately you know, somebody's losing and, and you're making a patsy yeah, of someone. Yeah, it's extremely if you do selfish. As, yeah, the greater fool sort of who's left holding the bag. But I suppose given you have spent so much time like researching these companies, cultivating a bit of a uh, matrix about how you invest in small caps, especially when, you know, they are tiny, they don't have sophisticated finance teams if they even have a finance team. So what, uh, let's say, what three things do you look for? And I'm sure there's like a whole host of others, but what are your top three things when you look for in small caps that potentially do have the foundation to succeed and to survive in what is quite a cutthroat part of the market? Yeah. So these aren't my top three things, but the three things that most listeners could start with would be uh, making a profit is an important beginning area for for if you want to play in, in a safer area. But zooming out, what I actually look for is on, and by the way, these are not original ideas. This is stolen ideas, most of them um, from Warren Buffett's letters and, and then one of my own. My own one is that I want to be a tailwind investor. So, I want to see a long-term demand tailwind when I'm investing. That basically stacks the odds in the favor of a company. If there are going to be more and more customers needing that kind of service over over a long period of time, that is a is a big deal. So that's the one that yep. I've sort of brought to what is otherwise just Warren Buffett's three things, which is honest and competent management, a competitive advantage, and then the the ability to reinvest uh, without needing massive amounts of capital. So that's uh, being capital light, self sustaining. Yeah, I do break that last rule a little bit because there are some decent businesses that have that score well on the others that aren't exactly capital light. But generally speaking especially in the letters after the inflationary period in the 70s, Warren Buffett really emphasized that you want a capital light business because the problem is even if you have a decent business, like an example of this is a, is a company I do own shares in, which is a good business and it's growing. It's called Dicker Data. And, you know, I have no, ah. no real view on it right now except to say, to illustrate my point that this business is doing well, it's getting, you know, growing its profits, it's growing its dividends, it's a well-run business with aligned, honest, competent management. However, because it is a distributor of IT products, it needs a lot of working capital. It needs to buy all of the equipment that it then on sells. So even as it grows, it needs more money to come in in order to fund that growth. So what you've seen is they've yeah. actually had to raise capital recently. They would have had to cut their dividend or raise capital essentially, even though they were growing their profits, just because as they get bigger, they need a bigger amount of money to fund all of that inventory. So that's kind of the disadvantage of, of capital intensive businesses. So those four things, uh, a tailwind, competitive advantage, capital light ability to invest in, reinvest in itself. And then honest and competent management. They're the four main things. But the one that I focus on the most is essentially honest and competent management and rating management quality. The reason for that is that all of it's about competition. If you're a small investor, if you're trying to do it in the boutique human way, you have to acknowledge that you're up against people with very smart computers. You're up against people with very high level mathematics education. You're going to really struggle to get an advantage 
if you're using data that they are instantly getting and feeding into a model and that's feeding an output for them, you're never going to be faster than them. You're probably, you're never going to be able to develop a, a model that sophisticated. You need to look for areas where they, they can't build a computer program that does it. And so that's why rating humans is a good one there. And another reason that small caps are less efficient, for example, is if you're building a computer model to tell you when a stock is cheap, you're going to be relying on a data provider. So they're Morningstar, CapIQ, and Bloomberg, essentially, and um, Reuters. And those guys don't have, for example, an instant feed of the data of what's come out in a small caps quarterly report that's an Appendix 4C in, in the ASX. But they will definitely have instantaneously, you know, Google or Microsoft's latest results. And that's just another reason why you go in the small caps area. If you want to compete, you want to make sure you're not competing against the big guys. You want to be competing against the people that have no idea what they're doing, the people that are getting their tips from Reddit, the people that just are (laughs) floundering. That is the competition because you're in a competition if you're an investor and you want to be in the top half, definitely. Yeah. But I found always found small caps a really, really interesting component of the market, especially people who maybe exclusively dabble in small caps because the data suggests that 80% of small caps fail, but some become the unicorns of today. Apple used to trade at like 80 cents a share and it's now the most valuable company in the world. So in your view, what do you think separates the wheat from the chaff? Do you think it's those three criteria? Yeah, look, I think it mostly is. So like there are lots of heuristics that people can use and start training themselves to recognize. Look, I think for people starting out, profitability is a great one. Like if we look at what we call like the darling tech stocks today, such as ProMedicus, which I own shares in and Altium, which I don't. When I was investing professionally, these companies, Altium, I remember when it was 60 cents per share. I bought Prometicus when it was 86 cents per share. These were small caps. You know, I recommended Prometicus when it was $1.50 per share, which is a, about $150 million market cap. It was already profitable. It, in both the case of Altium and Prometicus, you know, these were run by their founders. Their founders had huge insider holdings. So they had like really their money on the line. They're both software businesses. That's an important point because software scales really well, right? So if you've got your software suite, you can just, you'll do have to continually spend on that to make it better to stay ahead of the competition. But it's not like you're selling a new widget to someone. It's not like you're selling them a new banana or a new computer where every time you get a new customer, you have to then go and buy the input. Like basically every time you get a new customer, you can just like click your fingers and you've got the product for them. Yeah. Integration and like the ease of uptake for customers is low as opposed to something like Quantium, who is takes months to onboard a customer. Yeah. So within software companies that can be like hugely variable, how long it takes and how easy it is to onboard. But the point is there's no physical product you need to create. Like you've got the product there. You might have to integrate it with a system. You might have to teach them how to use it a little bit. That varies between products. But essentially it's there. You don't have to make something. You don't need to go, all right, now I need to buy something to fund that. It's just you have the product. It's infinitely replicable at essentially no additional cost. That's why it scales well. But for something to scale well, what do I mean by scale well? I mean, is you add a a million dollars of revenue to a software company. Hypothetically, it costs almost nothing incrementally to, to then serve that customer. And depending on the exact software company, it may indeed cost nothing. You know, if you go and sign up to zero today, it doesn't cost them anything, but you start paying them. So, and Zero is another one I own shares in, by the way, just as a way of disclosure. But the the point is that um, these companies can scale well, but then you need to check if they're going to scale well. And that's when having good 
quality management who are going to do the right thing and share those profits is is really crucial. And so I suppose the other side of the coin is you've done this for a very long time and you've done this professionally as well. But as part of that, I'm sure you get insights into people who invest in small caps and do it really badly. I feel like I've heard a few times people who unfortunately got tips from Reddit, went all in on a small cap, it went to zero and they were like, that's me done. And they never invested again or didn't invest for a very, very long time. But what do you think are some common mistakes that investors make? It's a good question, but I think that the, the best person I should make an example of is uh, me. I, I'm I'm the idiot <laughs> when I started out. So, I, I don't want people to think, oh, I think I'm not disparaging someone who gets their tip off Reddit. Like, that was me. Like, back when I was 21, I got my information off something that's probably even, and not probably, it's definitely worse than Reddit, Hot Copper, the worst of the worst. It's it's doesn't get, oh, it's AS, ASX copper. bets for boomers. Look, can't get worse than that, in my opinion, because I think at least, you know, the majority of the people on Reddit mean well. But I, what did I buy into? Okay, so my fallacies were coming left, right and centre. I chose a company that was called Ceramic Fuel Cells as my first investment. Uh, basically, I thought that they had a great technology story. It had been somewhat funded by, I think it was Woodside Petroleum. Don't quote me on that, but I think it might have been them. So, I felt that there was some sort of imprimatur from a big company, but rubbish. It's easy. If, once you've done it, if you're actually capable of looking back at yourself and be like, whoops, I did the, I did the wrong thing. You know, it was so obvious to me now, like I'm sitting there like fantasizing essentially about what could be the case, you know, if they could just do this and if they can do this and then if and if, and like, there's so many ifs, like it's so, it's not going to happen. But then I'm spending time researching all this bizarre science, like this science that's real science and hypothetically it could work, but I have a million ifs in my thesis and it's just so unlikely that it's going to come, but you fall into this thing, the more time you spend researching it, it's not research if you're just setting out to prove that this could be great and then you just try and look for all the information about that. So, I'm just spending my time thinking about the if and if and the world could be so much better off and blah, 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 and it'll be great and it works and just completely missing the actual drivers of whether it's going to succeed, which it didn't. And it went to zero eventually. Now, like along the way, because I just so f- happened flukily bought it at the right time, it went up a lot and that sort of got me hooked as an investor, like me seeing the potential for how much a small cap could move, that sold me on the potential for this kind of investing as a way to make money. But ultimately, what I learned by following that story to the bitter end, and, and I did, of course, sell out. I, I didn't hold the shares to zero and I'm not that silly, but I did give away uh, the majority, if not all of my profits and essentially all. I can't remember if I made a profit in the end or not, but I did give all that away and what I got really was that lesson of just don't, I mean, it took me a few times to learn it, to be quite honest. I didn't, can't say I just learned it straight away, but investing in a zero revenue idea that has so many ifs in its story before it actually makes a profit and pays a dividend is, and I didn't have any concept of this idea of capital light investment, like a company that has some revolutionary energy technology is the opposite of a capital light growth story. Like it needs to fund the building of these novel technologies, these manufacturing, like step by step, time and time again, like every single step of the way, they need more money before they even get meaningful amounts of money. And then they have to magically scale this thing, which they need even more money to do because they have to scale it and produce it at scale before they can even sell it at a profit. 
like looking back, you know, what was I thinking? Complete clown show. Like I, I should have lost my money. <laughs> if I didn't, I was lucky. And so you've talked a little bit about which research you did and ultimately perhaps the pick wasn't right and your thesis was maybe a little bit in on reflection, not your you know, didn't substantiate in the long term. But I am really curious to talk a little bit about where you were doing your research and what sources you recommend today. Well, thanks. That's a that's an easy one. Well, first of all, I recommend my website, A Rich Life, and, and part of the reason <laughs> that we, you know, were able to have been able to build a business is because there aren't that many people that are giving, I think, fairly sophisticated, in depth independent, transparent coverage of small cap companies. The prob- the problem is within the small cap industry is a lot of the coverage of small caps is generated by the companies paying for it. So that means that there's, you know, there's a whole plethora of different organizations who small cap companies can pay to write about them. They, that could be like, you know, research as a service, or it could be, you know, whatever the S3 consortium that owns a whole bunch of different brands and they'll, you know, have research and they'll, you know, write about the company. But what when when people get to a certain point of sophistication in their investing, and I don't pretend that a rich life is appropriate for complete beginners, even though we do have some complete beginners, that's not who we're pitched at. We're pitched at people that value an independent, transparent voice. You know, some of the articles that I'm proudest about are, uh, you know, the one that I wrote that's the truth about Redbubble, for example, the the truth about the Redbubble business model or the truth about the Appen business model. These are articles I wrote about popular stocks that people didn't even understand what they did. It, it's, cra- it's crazy stuff to think <laughs> about it. You can have hundreds and yeah. hundreds of people that have no, they don't, it's, well, I'm not even talking about difficult numbers. I'm just talking about sitting down and actually skeptically analyzing for yourself what the business does. And- you know that and that's it that's basically and, and that was that's why i originally was happy to work for the motley fool because even though i think it's sort of sometimes drowned out in some of the more uh you know marketing style content they write there at least has the proper business model where the person paying Mo- motley fool is the person who is reading their articles I personally, you know, don't, I'm not going to personally ever accept money from a company for me to write about it. And I think, you know, what a rich life and other similar services are for is for people that can see that. And for the people that just, it's, it's mind blowing, you know, you'll, you'll get very occasionally, you know, you'll have people that think, Oh, I'm not going to pay, you know, $400 for a subscription when I can get the, the free articles in my inbox from whoever it is. But, yeah. you know, like I think to a degree you get what you pay for and, and you have to ask how are they funding themselves. So whether or not you choose to read A Rich Life, I think that I would, listeners would be well served if they're actually serious about learning to in- invest. They'd be well served to read information from people who are answering to their readers and not some other client. And I was... Just thinking about the fact that it might actually surprise a lot of listeners to realise that your kind of classic financial education sources like the AFR are not always just self-funded. In fact, the AFR does do paid advertorials for particular products and services. So 
the point around if you are the product, that whole concept around anything that's free, you're then the product and it's your data or your business that's then generating back a return is a really, really important one because it applies everywhere. And in investing in particular, you mentioned it's a competitive market, but I think the point you made around marketing is a really, really important one as well in that businesses can market themselves well, but not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are good businesses. They can just be PR savvy. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, the, uh, most of the coverage of small caps is either paid for by the companies themselves, which I'd say is the wor- is probably the worst quality information of, on average. And then some of it's just like essentially clickbait. It's designed mostly to be attention grabbing. And that can essentially be boiled down to oftentimes it's just somebody rephrasing the company's press release, which runs into the same problem. Whereas if you have somebody uncritically repeating what the company says or sort of taking the bait of what the company wants them to say without giving any kind of sceptical read on that, then even though it's not deliberate, they are essentially just being a mouthpiece for the company. And I think that, that you know, probably I can fall into that trap. I'm not saying I'm immune to accidentally just r- wrongly repeating what a company has said, but really where you have value as an investor is using your own brain to sceptically analyze what companies say and I think where people make one of the big mistakes that I certainly made in my first investments, um, and I think I see a lot of beginner investments make today, is they uncritically read the company announcements. And it's it's just wild. It, it's like you have people that will angrily respond with threats and ad hominem attacks to anybody who even questions what, you know, the the rosy narrative that a company may put forward. And, those things are massive warning signs. Like now is probably a good time to say this because the heat is coming out and has been coming out of the market for six months now. If that's your mind frame and you're listening to this and, and it makes you angry when someone questions your investment thesis, or if there's just a lot of shareholders in the same company you own who can't hack it, that that's a bit of a warning sign because that <laughs> that's not actually how proper investing works. Proper investing works is you you want to be the first to the truth. It's about being more accurate than other people more quickly than other people. So it's not actually about having a debate. It's it's about finding the truth. So I suppose then we talk about recommending resources. I suppose the real big call out is read everything and read it critically. So when you're doing your research, I think I talk about this on Broco Wealth a lot a while ago about testing what you think is true and actually reading sources that directly contradict what you say. And to the extent it's investing in a company, I think that can be actually a really helpful activity is if you're really set on something, go find someone in the market who vehemently disagrees with you and test whether your approach stacks up. Because we, we're all human, right? And I think the confirmation bias is powerful and it's also powerful when everyone else in the market yeah, is right. saying, but oh, this is fantastic. A classic sign of just absolute red flag is anybody who like rails against short sellers, right? Like if you truly believe in the long-term value and future of your company, then it's actually a good thing if people are short the stock because if that means if you're right, then they're going to have to buy it back at some point in the future. <laughs> yeah. It makes no sense to be angry 
about people criticizing your company. And I think that people get angry because on some level they do know that there's no weighing going on. It's just a pure voting popularity contest. But it's defensive. That's a dangerous place to invest. I really like that. I, I think that's such an important concept that does not get talked about enough when we talk about you know, beginners starting to invest. Uh, but this brings me to our rapid round of big swinging stocks. So I can ask you a bunch of questions, quick answers, although we always chat because it's always interesting to see why people answer a, p- a particular way. But my first question for you is, what was your first investment? Well, I already answered that. It was ceramic fuel cells. Ceramic fuel cells. I didn't realize that was actually your first first. That's really, that's brave. I'm glad that there was an upswing there that kept you, I think, hooked a little bit. But that nicely leads me into what was your favorite investment of all time? Yeah, my like my favorite one is definitely Prometicus, which I still own today. And you couldn't have a better example of a, a company that can have a competitive advantage and scale well and reinvest in itself and um, have honest, competent management. The And, of course, a massive tailwind there because they do radiology scan processing. So um, radiology as a, as a way of diagnosing illnesses is only on the up and up. And there's all the evidence of the competitive advantage is clear. They basically can process the images and, and provide them to radiologists faster, which makes it better for the radiologists who are very expensive their time is worth a lot. So if you can save them time, it's worth a lot of money. Probably the limiting factor is actually how much can they reinvest in themselves. Uh, although actually, I think I think they'll be fine. But that's probably if I was going to try and attack the quality of the business, that's probably <laughs> where I would attack it. Um, but you know, the easier way to attack that investment now is it's just way too expensive, and and I I think it is too expensive. And what do you think the most undervalued or under studied industry is at the moment? It's probably going to sound trite because actually it's a super popular industry, but I still do think that over the long term, the intersection of healthcare and technology is my favorite place. I think it's the best place to invest. Uh, It's kind of been, it's come off the boil a little bit now in the last six months because they tend to be sort of tech stocks and, and stuff like that. But yeah. I still think over the long term, you have dual tailwinds that are blowing there In for another 20 years or so. We've got this aging population tailwinds. On top of that, the, the post-war generation, they have a lot of the wealth in society. So, uh, their, their spending needs are going to be particularly well-funded. So, yeah. healthcare and technology, that is the, the best little spot for me. Mm, I love that. What do you think, if we're looking, if we flip that coin, what do you think is super overhyped, either a stock or an industry? Okay. Well, so this isn't sort of intended as financial advice and um, I haven't studied it closely, but I think as a sector at the moment, what we're, what is super hot is lithium and understandably so because lithium is going to be a much bigger part of the future. And I hope and believe that some Australian companies will become big, profitable lithium producers. But, you know, I would say at the moment, the, the, within lithium, the, the most hyped up stock is Lake Resources. <laughs> yeah, many a thread on Reddit about Lake, I think. <laughs> um, but, it, I mean, it's, a, it's not financial advice. I mean, we're talking about not a financial product, we're talking about an entire industry. I think caution when anything is too everywhere and lithium was 
everywhere last year. Uh, but you are a proponent of small caps. And I think, I don't know, classic, you know, Buffett investing philosophy is core satellite. You have like most of your stocks in uh, either ETFs or what he calls like blue chip companies and then 20% in uh, small caps. But I'm curious, as someone who obviously has spent a lot of time in this industry, what's the percentage for you split? That's a good question. So when I own larger companies, it's mostly because I um, have bought that company when it was a smaller company and it's now a bigger company. So <laughs> if you nice, if you define small cap as something sort of under a billion dollars, then a couple of my larger holdings are now bigger than that. But that's just because it's it's gone up a lot in the time that I've held it, which I, tr- I try to hold, like my aim is always to hold a company for five, 10 years. Obviously, I mostly don't do that if something goes wrong. But um, yeah, so the split for me now is I'm just looking at my portfolio. Like, I guess this is very, very um, approximate, but I'd say maybe around 30% in what I'd consider large companies and then the rest in smaller companies. I don't think that's you know, right for most people, but I'm essentially a small cap investor. And when I'm looking for new ideas, I'm looking exclusively at small caps, essentially. I think I mentioned Altium earlier. I think that's a great business. I don't own shares in it. But the reason I don't own shares in it is because, unfortunately, I just missed it. And sort of by the time I started to think, oh, this is a great business, you wouldn't really consider it a small cap anymore. So, I was just so I'm a little bit more reticent. There'd have to be some sort of clear reason why I think I've got a better read on it than other people. I don't think you could say it's under the radar anymore, which is essentially what I'm looking for when I'm looking for new ideas. Ithacan provides perhaps a a range for investors like who are just starting out, stick to the basics, learn, and then you know you provide perhaps a counterpoint to that, someone who's extremely experienced and therefore has the risk profile as well as the analysis and the experience to take on what most would consider a far more risk risky portfolio obviously greater upside but I do think you know it, it's it's I think helpful for investors to see the range as opposed to just being told everyone does this they don't everyone has a different risk profile I think it depends very much on the person and how you're using investing if investing's kind of a mechanism for saving then I would you know, stick much more to lower risk stuff. But if investing is a passion and a side hobby and you could literally lose your entire account, then which is how it was for me certainly when I started out, I, if my entire portfolio had gone to zero, it wouldn't have affected my life at all. And that's so helpful to know. Claude, thank you so much for joining us on Big Swinging Stocks. If people want to get in touch with you or they want to sign up to A Rich Life, what's the best way? Uh, just visit the website. You can just Google A Rich Life and you'll find all the information you need there. But uh, you forgot to ask one question that you said you were going to ask, which is my worst financial decision. Oh, um, I did um, too. Do you want to share? Yeah, sure. Because it just was front of mind the other day. It's like... um. I, I guess a shout out to Motley Fool, really, because when I left that company, <laughs> I sold a lot of my shares, and that was probably my worst financial decision. I, I should have. You held sold on your to shares them. in I still Motley have Fool. Some. Yeah, I still have some today, but ah, I sold a lot of them. Like at the same time, I left to help fund really, like the fact that I was going to start doing some of my own things, and ah, uh, yeah, that was probably a mistake in hindsight. 
<laughs> probably the most expensive that's so mistake. interesting you say that that's your worst financial decision given you did use it to kind of start your yeah I didn't business. actually use it it was more just that I wanted to have more of a buffer yeah and yeah so that's why it was the worst decision essentially because oh. I liquidated it and now I'm not an employee I can't buy shares not that I'd want to but yeah look it, that was a mistake <laughs> and and I was reminded Damn. of that the other day well, there you go, folks. Uh, think carefully about what you sell. Um, I actually, I had the exact same experience. I used to be an Apple employee, got a bunch of Apple shares, and before I knew what I was doing, sold them. Again, actually, to, to have a buffer because I was between jobs. <laughs> and I just and literally think back on that and I was like, that you would have been a house deposit. Like, that kills me. But anyway, uh, we share these things to make everyone else feel better about themselves and perhaps uh, flagellate on <laughs> decisions and be like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. But um, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this chat, actually. I feel like I really like honest discussions about pros and cons and uh, a different part of the market than we hear about a lot at the moment. So I Great. really appreciate you taking the time. Well, my take-home message for if anyone listened this far is essentially that the best investment you can make is your own knowledge. So play for the long term and, and build up your own knowledge. Every single person is slightly different and probably has like their own optimum way to invest. There you go, folks. Wise words of wisdom. And to our listeners, thanks for hanging out with us again. We'll see you next week. Bye. 